Um, hello, and welcome to the 2020 Writers' Trust Awards Career Honors Edition. In lieu of in-person celebrations this year, the Writers' Trust is going digital to award more than $300,000 to Canadian writers. In this series of interviews, prize jurors from each of the Writers' Trust Career Awards will be chatting with recipients about their lives as writers, their work, and what's next for each of them. My name is Patsy Aldana. I was Matt's wife. I've also been a children's book publisher all my working life. The selection committee for the Matt Cohen Award consisted of Wayne Grady, Anita Rao Badami, and me. It was a rich and rewarding experience, even though virtual, but we missed the wisdom of our dear friend, Graham Gibson. For 20 years, the Matt Cohen Award has been presented to a Canadian writer who has lived a writing life, that is, never held down a real job, earned a pension, gone to work every day. This is a very hard thing to do in Canada, to make your living as a writer. The award is given for the kind of exceptional literary achievement that dedication to living the writing life allows. Previous winners include Mavis Gallant, the very first winner, Marie-Claire Blay, and Richard Wagamese, among other extraordinary writers who have devoted their lives to their art. It provides the winner with $25,000. The prize is for the writing. The money is so that the writer can carry on and write more great books. This award is presented in memory of Matt Cohen, who himself led the writer's life, as I can attest. He wrote more than 30 books, was a founding member of the Writers' Union of Canada, and as chairman of TWUC, was able to finally achieve the creation of the Public Lending Right Program. As a translator and editor of anthologies, he worked to bring major Quebec writers to the English-speaking world. He was also an internationally celebrated writer who helped put Canada on the world literary map. Upon his death in 1999, the Writers' Trust created the Matt Cohen Award as an annual award to a writer who has made a significant and lasting contribution to Canadian literature. I would very much like to express gratitude to the sponsor of this year's Matt Cohen Award, Lorraine Gray. We're far fortunate to have her support of the award, especially in a year such as this one. On behalf of the Writers' Trust, thank you for your generosity and your support for this year's winner, Lorraine. And now, the best part of my job... I am very pleased to announce that the winner of the 2020 Matt Cohen Award is Dennis Lee. If ever there was a deserving winner, it is he. One of the most important people involved in the creation of this world of Canadian writing in which Canada now basks, Dennis Lee is a poet, children's book author, essayist, song lyricist, and editor. As a publisher, he co-founded House of Anansi Press in 1967, and in that capacity, lovingly nurtured any number of people now considered the greats of Canadian literature, including Matt. But this prize is about him as a writer of close to 40 books of poetry and prose, his writing life. Lee's collection, Civil Elegies and Other Poems, was awarded the Governor General's Literary Award in 1972. As he was writing one of the books that defined the new Canadian nationalist movement, he was simultaneously writing the first of his famous children's poems. In 1970, he published a breakout book, Wiggle to the Laundromat, illustrated by Charlie Pachter, and I'm lucky enough to own one, which led to the iconic children's collection, Alligator Pie. In the 1980s, while continuing his serious writing in the best sense of the word, he was also writing most of the song lyrics for 96 episodes of Jim Henson's children's TV show, Fraggle Rock, but serious also, of course, in its own way. He was named an officer of the Order of Canada in 1993, served as Canada's first poet laureate from 2001 to 2004, and in 2017 published Heart Resonance Collected Poems, 1967 to 2017, a magisterial work. All the while, he was reworking and rewriting. 
He's married to novelist Susan Perley, lives in Toronto, and is here with me today, sadly, in voice only. But what a well-known and beloved voice it is. So, Dennis, as I just said, I have a copy of Wiggle to the Laundromat that I bought for my kids when I first came to Canada in 1971, and I and they loved it. Civil Elegies, was, which is so different, really, was first published in 1968 and then in a revised edition in 1972 and, I know, revised again in 2012. So from the very beginning, you're making poetry in two utterly different forms and voices. Can you talk Absolutely. about that? Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a strange business because when I was working on the kids' poems that became Alligator Pie, I hadn't yet uh, found my voice in adult poetry, and I was scribbling away at this desperately bad first manuscript of my first book. So I had no profile there, and um, with my other hand, I was writing the children's poetry. And the effect was that while I was desperately hoping to find my feet and make my mark as an adult poet in the country, I could not stop myself from writing nursery rhymes and, and the other poems for my own children who were very young at the time. So I had this fear that uh, if I ever did publish the children's poems, that would put paid uh, to any ambition I had to actually be accepted as a, an adult poet. Because not only were they children's poems, which is not a grievous sin probably in itself, but these were poems that rhymed, that used uh, metrical rhythms, that had regular stanza forms, and that was so <laughs> beyond the pale at that particular time, uh, that sort of formal traditionalism. But I couldn't stop myself, as I say, and eventually... Uh, I did find my own voice as an adult poet, and the kids' things went ahead and, and were published with Wiggle to the Laundromat and an Alligator Pie. And my uh, craven fear that, that this would mean ostracism from the august world of, of Canadian poetry was exactly wrong. Other poets would come up to me and say, God, I'm glad that thing exists. I read Alligator Pie every night with my kids at bedtime. So it it, uh, it turned out eventually all right. Well, and you broke and you broke also the idea that Canadian children's books couldn't sell. I mean, I remember you reading in your dashiki, and you know you definitely disproved the idea that Canadians didn't uh, couldn't write children's books. Yeah, the Alligator Pride did make it was sort of a, a breakthrough book for uh, for a homegrown book, really. Kind of taking off in its own right. But I think that was is also true of your um, of books like Civil Elegies. I mean, it might have been a struggle to come through to that, but I also think that showed Canadians what what could be done. Civil Elegies actually sold a copy or two, <laughs> <laughs> and showed people what I mean. I think it set a pretty high bar um, for political or and for the whole nationalist endeavor in a way well yeah it's true in terms of, of you know, making a mark in the bookstores civility sold a copy in 1972 when it won the government of dental's war and then in 1974 i think it sold two more copies and well done. <laughs> i think but uh yeah it, it did uh it, it did reach an audience and 
that you might not have predicted when you when you first saw it because it didn't really look like any other poetry that people were writing in the country at the time. But of course, it never hit the kind of uh, wonderful, wild popularity of, of Margaret Atwood's poetry or Leonard Cohen's poetry. Uh, but you know, it wasn't trying to, and that was fine. So, do do you want to talk about the way that you this whole range of ideas and themes and language that are sort of constantly present while you're working? Like, how do you how do you how do you manage those? Are you are you full of them all at the same time, or do they come and go, or what? How do you manage yeah. writing in such an incredibly diverse way? Um, well, it's a really good question, and the the um, the point where it actually took hold for me and, and became possible was after this wretched first book that I mentioned, Kingdom of Absence, which I worked on for I think seven years. And finally it was published. It was actually very made up of, it was a sonnet sequence, which was ridiculous because I had no business writing sonnets. It's not how my imagination works, but I hadn't figured that out yet. Once it came out, uh, out of the blue, I remember in the summer of 1968, um, no, 1967, sitting in my study and having this kind of thunderclap of, of rhythmic cadence coming through. Uh, and I just started writing almost automatically the way people speak of automatic writing. And it was a whole new voice that, that uh, I had I had been sort of hearing for a couple of years, but I'd never been able to make it work on the page. And it became a, a vehicle for a much more thunderous, tumbling, um, it's like standing under Niagara Falls. So that became civil elegies. And then it struck me, my goodness, if you could have that going on in a, a poem, what about having a second voice weave into it? Because, in fact, you know, there's really no point where we're all one thing or all another thing. We're not monochromatic that way. You and I are chatting here now and enjoying it. And at the same time, one of us is aware of uh, someone who's perhaps fatally ill in our connection. And there's a sort of early grieving going on. And then I have a grandchild who's just started a whole new chapter in his life. And it's scary and thrilling for him. I'm aware of that. And there's all the craziness in the public life now. There is a holiday that one of us took recently, perhaps, that gave us real peace in the natural world. All these things are braided together. And I was never happy with poetry, including my own, when it seemed to say there's only one kind of reality ever going on at one time. So I kept trying to find ways of writing polyphonically, of having uh, more than one thing happening at the same time or close to each other. Well, it, it seems to me, I mean, the other thing about your poetry that very few other people write the way you do, I think, about intimacy, about sex and love and your daily living with mixed in, as you say, with all the other stuff that's around in one's life, and and um, I think it's 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 brave and it's exceptional, really, uh, as far as I know, um, that it's so kind of um, 
visceral or something. That, that yeah, I hope so. You know, the <coughs> for me, the forms of physical intimacy of lovemaking, that is another kind of moment that has its own resonance and its own um, its own energy and, and way of being. And I wanted to be able to capture that as much as, as a moment of political anger or of friendship or you know, all the different... So let me give a couple of examples. I'll, I'll take something from the, the children's world. Uh, I'm going to read two poems, and, and uh, I think pretty quickly you'll recognize the, the two different um, musics in them. One, one is uh, antic and playful and even moving towards going out of control the way children sometimes both like doing and don't like doing. Uh, and the other one is, is a lullaby, very gentle and with a kind of deep consolation in it. So w- within each one, they they're sing- have a single voice, but the two of them give two extremes. So here is Bundle Buggy Boogie. Well, way up north on a fine bright day, a Bundle Buggy Boogie at the break of day, it did the Boogie Woogie here, the Boogie Woogie there, it did the Bundle Buggy Boogie Woogie everywhere. Calabogie, Capus Casing, Espanola, Attacoke, and Manitoulin, Mattawaskam, in Des Moines, Moosinee. Then another Bundle Buggy did a Boogie Woogie Hop. Another and another in the bundle boogie bop and it's a boogie boogie high, a boogie boogie low and it's a bundle boogie 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 everywhere you go. Athabasca, Apatibi, Bonavista, Malaspina, Bella, 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 Coola, Batuana, Bacamo. Now, in case you weren't completely certain, that was the antic one, not the lullaby. <laughs> wow, what a, what a voice. And here is the lullaby. You two lie down. Over every elm, the half-light hovers down. You lie down, too. Through every shade of dusk, a hush impinges. Robins settle to the nest. Beneath the deep earth breathes. It breathes. You, too, lie down. The drowsy room is close. And come to darkness. Hush. You too can sleep at last. You too lie down. Oh, beautiful. So two different kinds of music. And then ideally, I kept wanting to find a way of having an extended poem that could... <laughs> something that's impossible in words and on the page. But I kept wishing I could get two or three four different resonances, different musics, simultaneously. Well, that can't be done. In, in sung music, you know, you can have two or three voices each following a different melodic line, which is where the, the word really comes from. But on the page, the best you can do is move from one to the next to the next. But that that's always been something that I just felt pulled toward, tugged toward. You call it polyphony. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I have tugs at war with, with musician friends sometimes. I, I kidnapped the term, I shanghaied it, and huh. uh, repurposed it for writing purposes. So can you, can you read something where you've, where you've done that as best you can? 
Well, I could read you a, a longish piece. You, you, are you in the mood for a... I'd, lo- I'd love that. I'd love that we can end with that because I wish we had our entire lives to be hearing you. Well, we have had, but I'd like to hear some more now. And um, So please do. Well, look, I will read you then <coughs> again, a poem called Not Abstract Harmonies, But, and it is in fact both about the kind of thing we've been speaking of, and I hope it exemplifies it too. And it's really talking about different ways we have of making sense of the things of the world, of our experience. Uh, one of them is obviously having a, a system of intellectual categories that we fit things into. And then this is talking also about a different way, a more intuitive way of, kind of waving our feelers and antennae around and picking up the resonance of this thing and that thing and hearing how they chime off each other. And it suggests that uh, <laughs> counterintuitively that the young person is likely to use the abstract system because I haven't really lived enough yet to uh, know how different parts of the world feel when you, when you antennaize them out like that. Anyway, it's in three parts, so nab your cup of tea or your glass of wine and put your feet up, and we will do this little feet, not abstract harmonies, but. Well, I used to be young and <laughs> sensitive. Oh, boy, you know, I lay awake all night and dreamed of dying, like any young man should. No good. Kept the sheets dry. But now... I trim my beard in a rumor of white, and my body starts grumbling earlier in the day, and I would not be young again for a finished Ph.D. But the young keep doing it. They don a fearful abstraction and deliver themselves from appetites and earth with geriatric haste. But I, being lately recovered, choose never in thoughts or word or deed, to totter back to the kingdom of the young. My driven twenties. Why are they such a rueful nightmare now? I guess because our lives were abstract. My friends, my own, they left out squawky, imperfect flesh and the way things are on the planet. And though we were first to discover freedom, fellatio, zen, and the class analysis, like Bantam Einstein's solemnly arriving at the wheel in 65, which is fair enough, how else is wisdom renewed? And often we made brave lives ourselves, yet all of it was abstract, for it served the one forbidden God, denial of here and now. And I honor high abstraction, but never stop being various, earths and companions, and gritty and here until we can cherish what surrounds us, loathe it and cherish it. We will only oppress it further with all our heady, perfect systems. Or two, how did I miss it? But haltingly, silently, stubbornly, home, each mortal being announces the pitch of itself in a piecemeal world. And here, 
It was always here, the living coherence, not abstract harmonies, but rather that each thing gropes to be itself in time. And what is lovely is how, once brought to a pitch, it holds and presides in the fragile hum of its own galvanic being. And more, as it persists, it tunes to everything that is, neither an outright concord nor yammer, but half alive on all those jumbled wavelengths, inciting a field of near coherence in the spacey surround. One luminous deed amid the daily gumbo of motives, a well-made journey or tree or law, a much-loved parent, the fullness of grief, whatever, let that flourish in its completeness, and every nearby thing begins to quicken, tingle, dispose itself in relation, till smack in the clobber and flux, coherence is born. So each live thing endures, rife with the itch to pick up currents that do not mesh and live their concert. Each thing which makes for a welter of harmonies until those jagged cadenzas of meaning ripple like simultaneous fields of light. And if a man could stay clear enough, stay near and distanced enough, resonance by resonance it would ease down into itself, coherences cohering, till almost he senses the world as jubilee. I mean the hymn of the fullness of being, the ripple of luminous cosmoi up, down, and across the scales of orchestration in many-dimensional play. Here good, now bad, but telling the grace of daily, infinite coherence. Part 3 I speak of full coherence in hope alone. I'm not that quickened a tender and have no mind to loll in the blissed-out stupor while bodies are tortured and starve. Yet though it is never achieved in our lives, it is never wholly absent, for always we are buzzing on the verge, excited by urgent currents that fret us and rub us and never quite jibe with our own. And in a piecemeal world, let this be what I dwell in, not abstract harmonies, but rather the chronic abrasive, not quite consonants of the things which are. And the jangle is hard, but not to be quickened is death. And we are a botch and a warm-up, although I do not know for what. And who tunes us if it can be said that way at all, is an endless vocation. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what an honor to, to hear you reading that, and I'm so glad you did. And I'm so glad you've won the Matt Cohen Prize, and I want you to... I hope, and I'm sure you are writing and writing away, and we'll have more soon. 
I hope so. And it's such an honor for me. I thank everyone concerned. And, uh, you know, your words about the living the writing life and not having an honest job, uh, but scribbling away, it just makes all the difference. Uh, things are tight now, and uh, this will mean more writing is possible. So thank you ever so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Dennis, and congratulations. <sighs> thank you. Now we have to end. I'm so sorry. Um, you, the public, can listen and watch the other interviews with this year's Writers' Trust Career Prize winners on SoundCloud at Writers' Trust or on YouTube at Writers' Trust of Canada. On YouTube, you can also watch the Writers' Trust Awards Emerging Writers' Edition and Books of the Year Edition, celebrating the best in Canadian literature. Thank you for joining us today.